Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. All right, Kevin, great to be able to catch up with you, um, you know, and in particular to speak with a, a global money manager for our viewers to understand that you do uh, run an infrastructure, global infrastructure product. Um, and there's a lot of big macro picture items to focus in on here uh, with respect to why do we want to own infrastructure right now? And, and the number one on that front really is what's going going on in the interest rate environment. So why don't we start there? Because a lot of people say, look, if rates are going higher, what does that mean for dividend paying stocks, which tend to fall under your group? So what's your response to that? Yeah, there's a few different, uh, there's a few different ways to respond to that. One is that, you know, income solutions are permanent, are, are a necessary permanent part of the capital markets that, you know, as interest rates presumably move higher, we don't think they're going to move a lot higher. Um, think there's some risk there. You're actually going to see people who have been really entranced by the government uh, bond trade that they've seen what they consider a risk-free return as government uh, government bonds move down to you know one percent, sixty basis points, negative, negative in many cases. Saying, okay, well, I've got a return here that's a, a risk-free return. What you've seen over the course of this year is the risk-free return has become you know in the parlance risk-free return has become a return-free risk, that it got so low and you were beneath inflation on government bonds. And that's why you see pension managers saying, there's a recent Goldman Sachs insurance survey came out and said, you know, the number one worry is uh, yields backing up, but infrastructure equities, where I think the fourth, depending on the geography, was about the third or fourth most popular way of mitigating investment risks. I think within infrastructure, you've also seen they've taken their punch. You know, um, March of 2020 was a was a disaster scenario for for so many investments, so many people, obviously as well. To be clear, uh, but what you saw was airports shutting down, toll roads shutting down, pipelines, you know, uh, pipeline oil storage being filled. What you can say is that we've probably seen the worst of it, and as What's interesting is that over the course of this year, or even say since you know the Pfizer vaccine Monday back in November, what mm -hmm. you've seen is infrastructure has kind of traded well coincidentally with the reopening trade. It used to be that airports or toll roads were long duration uh, securities that would trade up when interest rates were headed down. Nowadays, a lot of infrastructure, uh, particularly the mobility or the energy infrastructure, uh, are more of a reopening trade, that when government bonds are backing up because of economic strength, that economic strength is going to be reflected in, you know, greater gasoline or jet fuel consumption, uh, greater uh, mobility or travel uh, on toll roads or greater shipments along railways. Now, utilities can be a little different, data centers or, or cell phone towers can be a little different, but that reopening trade has said to people, how will infrastructure perform when rates back up? Well, it turns out that it actually performs quite well, and we've seen some strength along the way. 
So, Kevin, with that said, which is an interesting perspective, it's almost a little bit counterintuitive to think that the reopening trade and more of the infrastructure dividend plays are uh, positively correlated. Mm -hmm. Having said that, though, obviously you're watching the interest rate environment very closely. The BOC was more hawkish last week. We've got the two-day Fed meeting this week uh, where, you know, there might be, you know, maybe not this meeting, but the back half of 2021. I think Goldman is saying that the Fed might start to hint at tapering and taper in 2022. Is there an inflation range or U.S. 10-year yield that you don't want to see the market go above that would then change your narrative? I think the, the, it, it might not be a specific level. It would be a, vol- a volatility level. I think that the infrastructure equities can certainly take, you know, pick your, pick your um, level. Is it a 2% on the 10 years, a two and a quarter at all? You know, pick one where, where the more duration sensitive parts of our industry or of the asset class got hit was when things were volatile. End of January, kind of into the middle of February, when you saw things like, oh my gosh, inflation figures are going to be really strong in March, uh, and therefore we should be shedding, uh, you know, shedding low-rate uh, government bonds because why would you lend at one percent when your inflation is going to be two percent, or inflation might be two point eight, three point two, depends on the base effects. What we've seen is if it goes up. Most of these companies, whether it be a pipeline company, whether it be a toll road company, whether it be a utility, tend to actually benefit on the cash flow side because they usually have consumer price index uh, escalators built within their uh, contracts or within their uh, regulatory constructs. So Mm -hmm. the cash flow actually doesn't get hit and dividends can actually do well. You could actually spur dividend growth along the way. So I do think it's just that the market tends to trade out of them on any given day. It's a market view rather than the actual underlying cash flows or the economics of the, of the companies and the equities. I think, yeah. And I think you'll also see a substitute effect. That is people say, you know, government bonds had been income. We've, we've been saying this to portfolio managers, to advisors for some time now, is that you used to go to government bonds for two things. One would be income. But two would be negative correlation, that when the stock market is way down, presumably the government bonds are, are way up. Um, that, that's still the case on the negative correlation side. It's just that you can't rely on it for that second piece, which is income, because the income that you're getting even now after this, you know, presumably horrendous backup or, you know, we see we tend to think of, you know, the Fed's uh, the Dow is down two percent. Fed's got a cut. Uh, you know, we're, we're near the highs. But people tend to, um, I think that when you say, how much do you need in your portfolio for both negative correlation as well as income, I think you'll see people substituting infrastructure, real estate, credit, uh, those items, and recognizing the value they can have in a portfolio in meeting those return targets that people need. Got it. Um, one of the other items, of course, that's been front and center in terms of um, infrastructure is what's been going on in the in the pipelines uh, huh. and the pushback, uh, the TMX delayed once again, and also, of course, um, controversy surrounding line five. Can you just kind of give us the, I don't know, the top down one line review in terms of what's going on with the pipe, pipeline industry really right now? I think the pipeline industry and we get to, you know, we, we invest large in Canadian as well as U.S. pipeline companies. 
I think there's, you know, you can almost put them into the Kubler-Ross model over the last kind of seven or eight years that you, you begin opening up with denial. It's like it's going to get built. Then you go to bargaining. It'll get built if we, you know, we do the ESG or if we consult more people. You get into the anger. Uh, and then at the end, you finally get into the acceptance stage. I think the pipeline industry is more or less in the acceptance stage that it is near impossible to get a large pipeline project built, certainly on time, uh, certainly in the way that it would have been done, you know, even seven years ago. So I think what you're going to see is a lot lower investment, period. That is, that's bad net on an economic basis. It's unfortunate for these companies, but as long as they don't malinvest, I don't think the valuations are reflecting a lot of growth. TMX, presumably, it is a seasonal sort of, um, it is a seasonal item that on the face of it might only be a four month delay over one kilometer of the pipeline. It does seem reasonable. It does seem consistent with the rule of law, but given history, I think a lot of people will say, oh, here we go again. So I think the skepticism has been built in. I feel pretty comfortable. It's interesting. The North American pipelines, which we like quite a bit, um, if I was to say, you know, lot, would you invest in Loblaws, Sobeys, Metro, whatever, you know, it depends on the price. But if I come to you and I say there's never, ever, ever going to be another set of grocery stores uh, built around where the, these grocery stores exist, I think you'd say, well, they're probably worth a little bit more. What we have as the pipeline map in North America right now is what we're going to have. And so I think the value of, of what's there and Enbridge, TransCanada, Williams, will be able to build on little spurs that will be accretive, will allow them to provide maybe a little bit of growth or at least maintain uh, earnings and cash flow. And so I think you have a better competitive position and less competitive threats right now because of that more difficult regulatory environment. Hmm. That's interesting. So it's almost as though the inability to get pipelines built has really decreased the supply of pipelines that might help the pipeline companies and maybe the stocks to a degree, but I'm, I'm kind of curious, what might that mean for the consumers, so the everyday individuals in Canada uh, and the United States for that matter, who might, I mean, will we see inflation because of, because of the lack of supply? We totally could. I mean, there's, there is, there's a lot of areas. And so what you're relying upon is that even if the large ones can't get built, that even as fields get depleted in, I don't know, pick one in the deep basin in Alberta or the Marcellus in, in the Northeast U.S., speaking of gas, um, you still have to be able to build these spurs within, you know, that are, you know, if you think of TransCanada's mainline, they're still able to build within Alberta. They're just never able to build, you know, a, a keystone, which crosses borders, both state and international. Um, what I think it relies upon is still being able to complete those spurs into new fields as, as existing fields are depleted. And I think that's okay. And in the meantime, you do still have a lot of runway. Like, you know, when the Biden administration said, we're not going to issue as many permits, although they've actually been issuing them. Um, you've said, um, you know, can we still, can we still, um, keep the fields up? Can we still move things along? People have been able to do that. So as long as you're able to keep that up for the next few years, I think there's five years of permits in inventory for a lot of our pipe uh, from the producers who use our pipeline companies. And so I think it's a little ways off. I mean, line five is sort of a special situation. Um, 
there's a couple other special situations, but in aggregate, I think we, we should see, we shouldn't see egress capacity be a major driver of inflation over the next little bit. You know, Kevin, it's interesting. We're kind of starting the topic of the conversation today with all the headwinds potentially facing some of the infrastructure plays. Um, yeah, yeah, another, yeah. Right. I mean, but that's OK. We're going to get to some okay. great ideas as yeah. well. It's OK. This is what's going on. Um, yeah. But the other aspect, of course, to take a look at is, is what's happening on the carbon tax front. How much of a headwind is that to some of these companies and corporations? Uh, it, you know, it depends within the uh, within the infrastructure sectors. It's certainly you know, I mean, the intent of the intent of carbon taxes is, you know, it's it's a Pigovian tax where the tax is meant to defer deter consumption rather than to actually raise revenue. Right. That's what the carbon tax is meant to do. I'm sure they'd be happy. You know, the federal government would be happy if there was never uh, carbon released after 2030. It's meant not to raise revenue. It's a headwind because it's raising the cost of capital. I mean, you look out, out west. Uh, Exxon reported today, I haven't taken a look at the results, but you look at the, the multiples that somebody like a Suncor or a Synovus are trading at, it inhibits, they, they have a difficult time accessing capital markets. Suncor can access the capital markets, I don't mean to say that, but smaller companies just can't invest because nobody believes they're going to be around in eight years. And so mm. when you're priced for that, um, in the short term, maybe you have free cash flow that you know you can put back in the ground with drilling or with exploration. Uh, but in the medium term, the capital markets will determine how much they can drill. The carbon tax, you know, certainly is a deterrent to consumption. It's a deterrent to multiples, and then it has the knock-on effect on capital allocation for for any producer for anything. Um, so I think that it's a headwind here. Uh, it's a headwind around the world for those companies, and and um, that's that's what it's meant to do under under the current administrations. Mm -hmm. and, and as you say, administrations plural. Um, you are a world uh, infrastructure money manager. Um, what does that mean in terms of you know looking at governments and not necessarily government risks, but you know really whether or not the governments can understand how much they can impose on these companies in, in terms of the tax, the carbon tax. Although they always say it's not a tax when I've had those interviews, but it's a tax. Yeah, it's, a tax. Um, it's a tax, right? It, so, it, even if you even if somebody gets money back, I mean, I get my I get some of my taxes back in the form of roads or you know a child benefit or whatever. It's, I'm still taxed. I that's a ridiculous. It's <laughs> a ridiculous semantic. It, it, it is. And they stick to it. It's pretty amazing until you keep asking them again and again, and then they just are silent. So yeah, <laughs> I've yeah, had those yeah. conversations. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, so, so you must have to then look around the world to decide, you know, where you really want to um, in, invest and place money. I mean, you manage money on individuals' behalves, on institutional behalves. So, I mean, you have a fiduciary duty to make sure you put it in the right spot. Well, of course, um, you know, understanding ESG. So where, yep. where does that leave you from a geographic perspective? You know, we're pretty comfortable in the U.S. on the utility space uh, across across the board in the U.S., to be honest. Um, and, and, and I'll just layer on that valuation obviously matters. I mean, you didn't mention it. I'm sure you 100% re recognize it. I know there are times where these risks get overly priced into the stocks. And I think that happened last year. So geographically, I would say, we, you know, we feel pretty comfortable, honestly, in the Canadian pipeline companies, um, a number of them, uh, valuation weighted. Um, I think you can say that you feel most confident in, in the U.S. overall. 
And again, I, I can divide it up segmented because over in Europe, you know, they have the green recovery plan. Every government, every institution has their version of build back better or, or, or something like that. And the Europeans seem intent on spending a lot of money um, driving hydrogen, driving renewables, driving, you know, the low carbon economy. We feel really confident that we have companies in the portfolio that can benefit from that quite significantly. Now, like which ones? Which ones okay. now that we're just on sure. the topic? Sure. So uh, in Canada, Borelex. So Borelex is a wind power producer out of Quebec. We're, a, I think, a top five shareholder there. Feel very confident that France is, is very sincere and frankly is behind in meeting its Paris uh, commitments. And so they, and as well, a lot of the companies over there, as they sign up to ESG or climate, you know, go net zero or no carbon emissions by 2030 or 2035, they are signing wind power and solar power deals so that their factories or their offices are carbon neutral. So Borelex is one, they keep, you know, maybe they roll off of a deal with the power system grid. So they might, you know, lose a power purchase agreement, PPA with France or electricity to France. But then Apple or Netflix or Google comes in and says, well, we actually could use that power and we're going to um, we're going to pay you a reasonable amount uh, to provide us either with offsets or direct power into our um, into our, our factories or into our, our grid. Um, so Borelex is a Canadian name that we're very constructive on. And I think the other thing, you know, from a valuation perspective, you used to value these companies and I'll get to a couple other in a second. You now have more confidence that you can value these companies as a permanent part of the grid. It used to be that I would go in and I'd say, well, they have a 15 year contract. I need to discount that at 7% or whatever level of cost of equity. And that's the value of the company. And as it rolls down, unless they reinvest, it's going to lose value. What I think we've been able to do is feel more confidence net in these, in these companies, because at the end of a 12-year power purchase agreement, you don't say, well, we don't know what's there, so we got to give a zero on the value. Instead, we can say, okay, it's still going to be producing. It might be repowered with you know, a, bigger, uh, a bigger windmill that can produce more power and the debt will be paid off. So we feel like we can actually assign a stronger terminal value because the commitment of these governments is so much stronger to, to renewables. Um, that's a Canadian example, it's, that's topical. Mm -hmm. uh, but Iberdrola in Spain, uh, Enel, I, those are two of the largest, I think along with Nextera, are th three of the largest renewables producers in the world. They're in our global infrastructure fund as well as some of our income funds. Uh, very good developers, good people on the ground around the world. And I think that renewables are going to grow. It's, it's just a fact. I don't have to, I don't dislike energy or energy stocks to say that, but there's clearly a commitment amongst sovereign governments to expand that. And look, whether or not they meet their commitments from a private company and shareholder perspective, they're willing to deploy things like loan guarantees. They're willing to deploy capital uh, capital expenditure subsidies. Um, the, the governments are. The, the governments, governments around the world, yeah. That was the pronoun. And so whether or not it works out perfectly, which it probably won't, these are big economic <laughs> moves, 
Uh, we think that these companies are very well positioned to take advantage of those sort of uh, those sort of macro trends. Yeah, there, there's a real support system for the renewables, obviously, and there has been and continues to be from the government funding perspective, almost yeah. in some ways like what we saw with Tesla and, and the credits that they've received, oh, which yeah. really helped them leap, leapfrog above everybody else. You, you just got to get capital. And, and, and I mean, look, there's how much money are you going to make and how much, how much, what was the cost of capital that you had to incur to get there? That's, that's the question. And so although these things are, are trading at a reasonably good cost of capital, uh, mm-hmm. the returns are still there. And if you're a good developer, you can get returns above it. So that's, uh, we feel very comfortable in, in those names. Um, Kevin, somebody mentioned this to me last week. I'm trying to even remember who it was. That said, basically, if you want to ever figure out which growth company or which company will win in the end, it is, and we, I think, probably learned this from our CFA, but it was so long ago for me, and I only did level one. So, um, But that the companies that win in the end are the ones with the lowest cost of capital. It sounds so basic, but it it appears to be true, particularly when you look at it from a fixed income perspective, which your background is actually on the credit side. So um, give us a little bit of color around, around that, because- you know, when you when our viewers think about investing in renewables, I mean, is it so key and critical that they actually understand what the cost of capital is and make sure that they've got the lower one out of all of them? Yeah, they're all pretty low. That's the thing is that there is, you know, um, there's more supply of cap. There's probably more supply of capital than demand of capital. So anytime supply is higher than demand, the price is going to go down. You know, you have these green bond funds, you have the iClean ETF. Uh, you have government programs. And so the cost of capital is probably almost taken for granted these days and for good reason, for good reason. Um, and, and then it's, can you get a renewable project that's worth more than that? And, and I think it's a nice risk to have when the risk is, do you, know, do you overpay? It's possible that you overpay and that results in a degradation of your, of your share price along the way. But it's better than, you know, having a blow up where, you know, you can't get the darn thing completed because, you don't, or you have to do a dilutive equity raise because, you know, cost overruns demanded a demanded some more money. Yeah. And, and Kevin, I think we should almost step back for one second, because when we think about infrastructure, just so everybody's on the same page, um, in your mindset, first, what is that all what does that encompass? Um, so yep. that everybody understands, because we've talked a lot about renewables, but and pipelines. It's also utilities, as we've mentioned. Water might be in there. So, kind of, ha- mm-hmm. what are the buckets, the verticals that we need to be thinking about um, within infrastructure? Sure, we 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 give it as an acronym. It's uh, we just call it PUT. You know, a lot of people who are uh, advisors like to golf as well, so we call it PUT for dough, which is uh, pipelines, which we've talked about, utilities, which we've touched upon with the renewables, uh, transportation. You know, which mm. is more you know, in 2020 was the more volatile and in 2021 is kind of the more um, uh, open question as to how that will perform within transportation. We're talking about rails, which have done great, uh, but we're also talking about toll roads as well as around the world. You have a lot of publicly traded airports, most Mexican airports, most European airports and most Asia Pacific airports are, are publicly traded. So that's a little bit more of a, a questionable spot. And then the second T or the second T, the last letter is telecommunications. Mm. So that's not exactly like, you know, around here, it's TELUS or Rogers. It's, we, we don't include that within the infrastructure bucket. What we include, Canada, again, is a bit of an outlier. Around the world, a lot of uh, countries have seen their towers 
uh, or their fiber networks outsourced from the uh, telecom providers. And so they, uh, they're open source, which is good for competition. Sometimes they're regulated, but you can invest in a tower company itself, or you can invest in a fiber company itself without worrying about, you know, the risk that all of us do that, you know, you call up your, your um, internet or a cable provider and you say, you know, I want a discount next month or whatever. So we're so within telecommunications infrastructure, that's a big growing area uh, within the world as 5G and data growth have made that, uh, that are, uh, infrastructure as important as a railway, as important as a, as a toll road or a power mm -hmm. grid. So mm -hmm. we include that in there as well. Okay, yeah, the actual cell towers, which I know we're going to get to in terms of one of your uh, top picks or a pick. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But but when we just think about um, government uh, initiatives right now, what, what was your takeaway from the Canadian budget the other week uh, as it relates to the impact on infrastructure? You know, it was. I think it was kind of a missed opportunity. There were there were some things they could have done. I was surprised. I actually thought a little there would be a little bit more of a bang. Uh, in there, I actually think you know the U.S. is trying to reduce uh, oil oil imports uh, from Canada with Keystone XL being shut down. Questions around Line Five. I think one way that Canada could be making up for that is actually building a much better grid. Canada is in great shape. I think there was a there was an article yesterday about how we want to be able to export more hydro. And about how that hydro-producing uh, provinces can help. You know, Manitoba can help Alberta. Uh, Quebec can help New Brunswick or Nova Scotia as they transition off of coal. But the bigger project and the bigger market, frankly, is the U.S. Northeast. And there's been a lot of talk about you know the U.S. Northeast is is a growth area for renewables. But as we've seen in California, I mean, Gavin Newsom I think just hit a recall election this morning. Um, when you go to renewables without a lot of grid stability and without a lot of backup power, you get your brownouts or you get your challenges or you can't connect people to power. Um, what would be good for from a Canadian perspective is to use Hydro Quebec or to use Manitoba Hydro, build into the US so that hydro energy exports actually can replace, you know, this is on a very macroeconomic basis, so on yeah. you know, payments. Get the get, continue to be the energy exporter to the U.S. Continue with the oil, continue with the gas, but also make sure you build up the grid that allows uh, for a lot more exports of the clean power that Massachusetts is doing uh, requests for proposal on, New York is doing requests for proposal on, Vermont has, and how do we build that connectivity for a country with excess power to a country that wants that type of power? I would have liked to have seen that. I thought there were a few other things. One thing that, you know, they're, they're funding carbon capture and sequestration studies. Mm -hmm. I think that's fine. And I actually think that's an opportunity for a few um, uh, pipeline companies out West. Uh, but then they said, well, we're not going to fund it if you use the carbon captured to actually do uh, enhanced oil recovery, EOR. You know, put it into the ground, squeeze some oil. You know, CO2 actually has been historically used. Kinder Morgan just had some great results doing it that if you put carbon dioxide into the ground, sometimes you can make oil come up. Uh, that would be a great trade-off for, for the economy and the and carbon reduction um, initiatives. Uh, but they came out and they said, well, we're not gonna, we're not gonna help with that. And it, it's very frustrating because 
you have you say you have a carbon tax, so you're not making these micromanaging decisions. And yet when it comes to there, you've got both the carbon tax and the micromanaging decisions. And it's, you know, I'm a former economist with Finance Canada. I have a policy background, not, you know, it's been a long time, but it's very frustrating to see that level of policy um, goofiness along the yeah. way. So yeah. I think, yes, yeah. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, Kevin, I, you know, I, when I was um, preparing for today, actually, you, for our viewers to know, you know, I've been talking for years now, um, yeah. but I didn't know that you were with Finance Canada and, and really have that policy background. So it, you know, it, it makes the conversation even, you know, more valuable and more, more full as well to, to get your perspective on this. It's, it is a bit of a mismatch and, um, and, it, and it's a complex situation. I think there's, you know, hopefully more and more Canadians are getting engaged in understanding this, but it is complex. It's not necessarily easy to understand what, what you just mentioned. No, it's, it's not. There's a lot of trade-offs going. There's a lot of ways Canada can win. Um, you know, uh, we, we negotiated hard for something that hasn't been resolved, which is Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, which says, uh, you may be familiar with it, but it's, it's, it's that if you help a country decarbonize, you can use some of those carbon credits. If you know China says we're going to use LNG instead of a coal plant, or maybe the Philippines would be a better example. If you use LNG, which is about 40% of, uh, of the carbon impact of coal, Canada can actually use some of those credits for its own sort of targets. Mm-hmm. That's, um, that, that makes sense to me. Or if you help build a, a, a solar plant around the world. But those negotiations haven't been completed. They might get completed by this Glasgow uh, summit uh, coming up. But it's, I think it's an opportunity where you would say, well, you know, LNG Canada is going to be a very good decarbonizing item. And it's also going to be a very good economic item for Canada. It's just that we need to make sure that we execute on implementing, you know, what, what, what we've already negotiated, finish it through to the end. Mm-hmm. Um... Kevin, let's uh, talk a little bit about some of the stocks, and we've touched upon a few of them. Um, and speaking of LNG, the ticker LNG Chineers is one of the ones that you uh, that you do own in the portfolio. I, I feel like a lot of money managers over the past decade, at least, have really looked at this very closely and own it. But give us a bit of the history and, and where it stands now. Uh, Chineers, a, a, an, an incredibly impressive company. You know, it used to have an import facility for natural gas down on the Gulf Coast, uh, Sabine Pass, kind of in between Texas and Louisiana. They built it as an import facility and then realized, well, wait a second, shale and fracking is coming along and the U.S. will be a natural gas exporter. Let's turn it around and start liquefying natural gas for export. Sign some long-term contracts with, you know, um, Shell, with BG, with, you know, same company now, Total, and major, major grid operators around the world. Um, And what they've done is they just keep building and building and building as that global gas demand keeps going up. So we, um, there was some fears last year that that Chenier would have some broken contracts. About 85% of their cash flows are just locked in. Uh, You know, they just pass along the cost. They get a little bit of margin along the way and they sell it to Total or they sell it to Shell. Um, but they've been using those cash. They've been accessing the debt markets. We've owned the debt for even a longer time than we've owned the equity. But we've transitioned into the equity as more attractive because you've got some very certain cash flows. You've got some very good growth. And around the world, uh, liquefied natural gas is becoming the reliable thing. 
this transition is going to produce, as, as I referenced from California, as I referenced from other areas, you need to have power supply. It, it, it's just critical. And hydrogen's not there yet. Wind and solar are, are intermittent. Hydro isn't everywhere. And mm -hmm. so natural gas, the U.S. is the reliable spot for natural gas. And so when I look at it and I can model these cash flows out to 2043, you look at it and you say, my goodness, people think these cash flows are risky, but they're actually not. And then you say, well, wait a second, it's got a lot of debt on it. Yeah, but it used that debt to create earnings that are, you know, going back to our cost of capital discussion, that if I can borrow for 10 years at three and a half or three percent and create a free cash flow yield into the equity holders of 10, 12, 14 percent, well, I think I'm happy to take that equity different, you know, I'm happy to take a 10% differential between the cost of debt and the cost of equity. So we see them, I think, uh, I believe it's next Friday, their earnings come out, hmm. either next Friday or the Friday after. We think they're probably in a position to announce some small growth projects, uh, but also to create a dividend, which they're at that point where Maybe they don't do the dividend. Maybe they want to delever a little bit to keep those rating agencies happy and keep on a course to investment grade away from high yield. Uh, but look, whichever way, they're generating a lot of cash flow. And whether it's you know next week or whether it's next year, that cash flow is going to come to us. And they're not as risky as, as the market perceives them to be. Okay. Um, and speaking of debt, um, I don't know if you saw this report. It was from Goldman Sachs um, maybe a week or two ago that I read about U.S. utilities. And you've mentioned uh, that you're favorable towards a couple of them. And mm -hmm. this report was talking about um, how utility companies in the United States are structured. Correct me if I'm wrong. I only have a surface level understanding of this. But basically, because they have so much debt or need the debt in order to continue to build, that they're under a hold co of sorts so that a rise in corporate tax rate in the United States actually helps them. It doesn't hurt them because of the pass through effect on the tax front. Yeah, there's a, yeah, there you go. You got Did I get it right? Yeah. Ding, ding, <laughs> okay. ding, ding. That's good. Okay. No. Um, uh, yeah. Corporate taxes, they actually allocate. There's a couple things. Number one, they have a lot of debt down at the, um, you, you know, you might invest in somebody like, let's say, let's say Sempra, one of our holdings. Um, Sempra is a publicly traded company, but they're regulated by Texas, they're regulated by Mexico. And so they have these assets that are ring fenced down here. And so those, and those are the regulated assets. You know, the publicly traded company is regulated by the SEC, but it doesn't have a regulated return. Those assets down at the operating level get to pass along tax rates as part of their, if I say you're allowed to make, you know, a 7% return on your assets, you'll get a seven, seven bucks of profit for every hundred bucks of, um, of your asset base. Okay, so the profit actually incurs a, if you build back up, you actually put a corporate tax rate in there that assumes it. Now, oftentimes they have structures that allow them to not fully pay those taxes uh, at, at the regulated subsidiary, but they still get a build back that if a corporate tax rate goes up, they can actually bill more to account for those corporate taxes. So what you'll have is you might end up with deferred taxes. You probably pay a little bit more, uh, but in general, you get to pass them through to your customers in a way that somebody like a tech firm or a bank uh, who doesn't have a regulated return with, with a corporate tax imputation um, 
they they're advantaged because that tax is a pass through, just like we talked about with inflation. So they are a little more protected than that hmm. than than the average company. Yeah, and so it's an interesting way to kind of um, you know have investors understand the differences amongst companies with respect to an increase in corporate tax rate. Mm-hmm. And and but it got me to read the full report. Um, yep. Because I haven't actually looked at utilities since, uh, you know, when they were really like hot, which is hard to believe. But that was back in about <laughs> 2002 when I was at Goldman. Remember those days? I don't know if that was uh, kind of uh, there was the regulated and then the unregulated. Uh, yeah. Everybody wanted to know about them. I ha- It's been that long. And tell me, I you know. Smartest, guy, smartest guys in the room is somewhere back there, uh, oh. which is when you were you were pumping, you know. Where you know Enron was pumping you know power in at night, two thousand bucks a megawatt hour, and and, oh, and right. it out again. So that was a little more. That was certainly more exciting. Yeah, yeah, that was the cowboy days, I think. And but you know yeah. what was interesting though, Kevin, and, and tell me where you're at when you take a look at the valuations of these companies, because I believe that they're trading at a discount to the S and P five hundred. But yeah. historically, they trade at a premium, which surprises me. And also some of the names, like I, uh, I think it was Nextera, I think, um, and I think some yep. of the other ones you you mentioned, uh, Semper maybe. I mean, you're you're seeing some, you know, three to four percent dividend yields, and there might also be some capital appreciation. Oh, totally. Um, there, there's two relative things. They do trade at a bit of a discount to the S and P these days. It used to be that people valued those nice, consistent cash flows, and particularly, I mean, when you think back to 2002, 2003. Look, consistent cash flows versus you know the the tech blow up or the um, other other you know WorldCom pick one, um, Adelphia. Let's all go, let's go through the uh, it's like survivor battling mm. yeah. past dead uh, tiki's. The um, that that consistency of cash flow and that certainty of um, asset of, of a good quality asset was valued at a premium. Obviously, in the last couple of years. First off, the tax cuts in uh, late 17, 18, when I talked about tax increases being good for utilities, uh, in ter- not, not just in terms of the cash flow, but in terms of, you know, that'll produce investor demand for return that will produce the returns. Um, the tax cuts took investor demand for utilities down because uh, in the same way that the tax cuts could take it up. Um, so that you're at a you're at a discount, and just they've been out of favor. I'm rambling a little bit here, but the other thing is that they are at a discount right now. They tend to trade pretty pretty well correlated with investment grade bond spreads, and so you've usually seen when you've seen a compression in investment grade bond spreads, and the investment grade uh, bond category is 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 viewed as a nice nice safe place to get income. That would describe both investment grade bonds as well as utilities. So usually like investment grades rally down, rally up in price, down in yield, that you'll see the utilities rally as well. The Fed activities in terms of buying corporate bonds, when the Fed's directly buying corporate bonds, they're not at the point like the Japanese government in terms of buying direct stocks. So you've suppressed the investment grade bond returns that produces a really nice valuation gap for utilities, not only versus other stocks, but versus another asset class that more or less should fulfill a comparable role for investors uh, in their portfolio. So Utes look look pretty good. And the Biden plan, again, I I was more specific to Europe 
in terms of governments providing money, um, whether they're successful or not. But the Biden plan itself, you know, calls for uh, the percentage of U.S. Uh, renewables uh, to in the grid as a proportion of how much energy to double. Every time these utilities invest, you know what? Honestly, they make more money because it's a regulated return. Grow the asset base, grow the earnings. So I think along the way, as you see new um, renewables being developed, you're also going to be building transmission towers from that solar farm or from that from that wind farm. That's just nice regulated growth. And so mm -hmm. we see some pretty good opportunities uh, and throw in Texas as well. You know, they're going to have to be rebuilding or strengthening their grid after the storm. So it, it, it looks to me that you're going to have comparable growth at a discounted valuation in there. So we like a number of names in there. And, and what would be two names to take a look at? Uh, well, Nextera is one. They're just best of breed. They're, they don't trade at a discount to the, to the group, but they are growing faster. They're excellent operators. Uh, they're out of Florida. They're the old, they're the old uh, FPL, Florida. Florida yes. yes. I there you did go. look at that. I actually, that was the one I might be like, I was, I was, I, because it was Florida. Yeah. 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 And, and, and you saw, I mean, the census was released yesterday. Uh, you know, lots of people moving to Florida and that just represents an opportunity to build throw on the renewables expertise, that's an opportunity to build, to grow. And so I think Nextera, even though it's not trading at a discount, it's just a best in breed that knows how to allocate capital. The other one that we particularly like is Sempra. Sempra is the old San Diego gas and electric, but they've expanded uh, around California into Mexico with a subsidiary they're just buying back in. I think it closed today as well. They were smart and bought a, a Texas gas network that uh, again, if we're doing old home week, if you talk about TXU, which uh, the old Texas utility went yep. bankrupt, Sempra bought that out of bankruptcy very smartly. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity to grow there because the private equity owners underinvested because of the debt load. So Sempra said, we'll step in, we'll get a lot of growth. Texas is a great jurisdiction. And so we do like we do like those growing utilities uh, in areas with uh, good regulators. So those are two. Great. Um, can we only have a couple minutes left? And there's two stocks I do want to get to. Um, one is um, uh, an international company that you guys were involved uh, or one of the largest um, owners, I believe, in the in the IPO. Yeah. Vantage. Yeah. Right? Vantage. So Vantage, we talked about telecom infrastructure as a, um, you know, as a key part of infrastructure these days. And so Vodafone, which is one of the largest incumbent telephone operators over in, over in Europe, you know, Germany, UK, uh, Spain, they decided, you know, for corporate finance reasons to spin out their towers. Usually, again, here in Canada, we, you know, those are managed within the big three. Um, over there, they said, you know what, these tower companies are trading at a much higher valuation than we ourselves are trading at. Why don't we spin those out into a separate stock? They kept a large piece of it. And so, uh, yeah, late last year, they started setting up international meetings. Uh, our team at CI took a good look at it, took a management meeting very early. And we said, wow, you know what? Between a high quality counterparty, which is Vodafone, uh, between a lot of growth, which is that Vodafone has to keep its network up. It's a, it's a premium operator. There are these, you know, like, I don't know, like Freedom or, you know, some of the junior ones don't have to worry about network because they compete on price. Vodafone competes on network. So they're always going to continue investing in that network. 
that will accrue to Vantage, the spin out of the towers, uh, because you know if you want to improve the network, you have to put up a new cell site, you have to put up a new tower, you have to lay some new fiber uh, to those places. Mm-hmm. Those Vodafone expenses will become Vantage revenues. So we started in on it in December, uh, had a number of management meetings, um, did a lot of due diligence, making sure that we weren't stepping into something silly or that we weren't stepping into a silly valuation. And, you know, we were, we at CI, we were able to write a, you know, a big enough check that we had some influence on the price that it came at. It just popped, I think, four and a half or four and a half percent today as the analysts started uh, releasing their reports saying it's very undervalued. So 5G in Europe, as they try to catch up um, on their networks and make sure that they're competitive is a really nice growth area. And we think we have a leading stock here that can take advantage of it. And, and Kevin, is that um, is there an ADR or no? You have to buy it. I, we own it. We own it over on the Frankfurt Exchange. Um, okay. So, um, it wouldn't surprise me if at some point there's an ADR. It's very tightly held. It's you know about oh. a 13, 13 billion euro uh, market cap company, but I think it only trades about uh, maybe ten million euros a day. So we're oh. tightly held. So it's nice to see a little bit of demand, which. Um, Mm-hmm. you know, is moving it up. Okay. They can just own your fund. I think that's the right call. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Lastly here, and we'll wrap it up. Uh, but it's interesting when you talk about how Vodafone was able to um, spin out their towers. Do you think that we'll ever see that in Canada or too tightly held? And I should also ask, what are your thoughts? Separate question, but what are your thoughts with respect to uh, Rogers buying Shaw? I I think at some point you'll probably see them and not in the near term. I think all of them like owning the owning their network uh, for competitive reasons and for control as well. They want to be the people that say, if Google wants to set up a data center, you know, TELUS wants to be in that mix or or Rogers wants to be in that mix, just saying we own the network, we can control it. But at some point, at some point, the valuation differential becomes too big to ignore. I'd probably argue that it is right now. You could be trading, I think our telco stocks trade at seven times enterprise value to, to EBITDA, you know, basically operating cash flow before interest and taxes. And you can spin these out probably at 15 or 16 times. So I think at some point that will come. I also think it might come from the regulators saying, we need to open up these markets. Um, Maybe they put it, maybe they regulate a sort of a telco utility, which would have mandates to do broadband uh, in rural areas. I think that, uh, I think it's going to come at some point. The logic is very compelling, but I think right now the management teams are, are, are more interested in controlling. Yeah. Um, and John Rogers, um, look, that is going to be a very punitive uh, settlement from the regulators. I was involved in a, a, a we ended up making a decent amount of money on one of the new entrants that came in in the late 2000s, Mobilicity, back when I was on the credit side, on the, on the lending side. We made money, but we went through bankruptcy with it. And so we had some experience with what regulators feel, what Industry Canada, or I said now, ISED, uh, now feels and how punitive and how protective they are of making sure that new entrants have adequate spectrum. I think the cable thing is a bit of a layup. I think that makes sense for Rogers to come in and, and provide some provide you know a little bit of capital infusion and maybe some growth. 
I think Shaw is in trouble. I think TELUS actually looks good for the next 12 to 18 months because, you know, they're building fiber. They just did an equity deal. And so they'll have the competitive field, not to themselves, but, but they'll be able to be aggressive uh, growing out West. I'll, I'll be interested to see. I am sure there are conditions, including maybe the divestment of freedom, uh, maybe the divestment of spectrum or opening up the network on a more wholesale basis that uh, the government of Canada will be pushing. I will be really interested to see how punitive they are, or at least how punitive is probably an unfair word, but how demanding they are uh, on making sure that a fourth uh, competitor, whether it be Explornet or Kojiko or Quebec or uh, ha how how open the network and how open the market structure has to be for that fourth competitor to come in. So I, I think it's probably likely to go through maybe like mm -hmm. a 60% chance, which that's a total hedge. That's <laughs> between, between zero and a hundred, but I think the cost is going to be steep. Okay. Got it. Uh, Kevin, we got to leave it there. It's been great to catch up. So much great information, ideas and perspectives, insights for our viewers. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Catherine. Thank you.